Um, I mean, do you think that the Portuguese example uh, could have happened without Greece having happened before it? No. That's, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I agree. I mean, honestly, I don't think so. So if if we if we would look back in time, and if Portugal would have if the, if Portugal would have had the need, and I say need in commas, to ask for a, buy- a bailout before Greece, then probably not. Um, it wouldn't have happened this way. Right, I, I'm quoting it now. Kim Jong Un is going to be the greatest leader of North Korea in history. <laughs> I mean, yes. He's going to be the cruise chef of North Korea. Watch it. Well, they're going to win the Nobel Peace Prize, aren't they? Oh, yeah. which, which, is a, which is a hallowed prize won by many noble humanist figures in the past. Like the EU. <laughs> I, I, really, I really, I really hope that Trump, that Trump wins the Nobel Prize. I, I, was, I was saying this just the other day. I really hope Trump wins the Nobel Prize. He deserves it more than Barack Obama did. Well, yeah, totally. Just to see how many, how many people's heads explode. <laughs> I mean, if you if you were a sane thinking uh, humanist individual, your head would be exploded after learning the note Henry Kissinger won. It's already <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, and now this is just now you really want this to win because you want to like make sure that people don't forget about this stupid fucking prize in the game. What greater depths of absurdity can we plumb? Let's go. Welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? Portugal has been portrayed as the European exception by elements of the left, as well as by publications of the bourgeoisie, such as the Financial Times and The Economist. It's seen as a responsible social democracy, which has managed to ward off the harshest effects of austerity thanks to the mature and responsible governance of the Socialist Party. The same party has only managed to govern, though, due to a pact with the radical left represented by the Bloco de Esquerda, the left bloc, and the Portuguese Communist Party. Portugal has experienced steady growth and managed to mitigate the worst effects of austerity, unlike, say, Greece. This week, we're joined by Catarina Principi, a militant in the Bloco de Esquerda and a contributing editor with Jacobin magazine, to discuss the Portuguese model, the prospects for left coalition governments, the future of social democracy and the left's relation to the EU. This episode is of particular importance due to the continued fetishization of the EU and the inability to comprehend the nature of the socialist and democratic argument against it among some sectors of the Anglophone left. Katarina presents a radical, honest and incisive political critique from inside a genuine party and movement about the fortunes of the left in relation to the EU. Keep an eye out also for a forthcoming series on Portugal edited by Katarina in Jacobin. All right, welcome everyone. Uh, we've got the usual crowd here. We've got Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare in the UK, and we've got Ben Fogel and myself here in São Paulo, Brazil. Hello. Uh, How's it? So you guys, hey. to, to, to start off, uh, do you guys see the Sunday Times front page today? Anybody see this? Yeah, yeah they're, they're back it's, on their bullshit, aren't they? They're back on their bullshit. I mean, it's a nice segue from the episode we had two weeks ago uh, talking to Tara McCormick, who was the object of a, of a slanderous spread in the Times front page and a two-page spread saying how she was Assad's pal, basically, um, because she was questioning the war propaganda. And today they've crushing, come out with this Corbyn thing. Debate. Yeah. And now it's a... Yeah, corp- it's weird, though, because nothing sticks, you know? Like, they try the... Um, I mean, they tried the Czech intelligence thing. That was like a serious bid, you know, that he's yeah. a Cold War Czech sleeper agent. And then, like, now it's the Russian bots, and it's just... Uh, it's. I mean, I... 
it must be obvious, surely, to like somebody in the newsroom. Somebody must have some sense of distance from it and ha- have an understanding of how crazy it looks from the outside. Well, I mean, there's two things to say. One is you've forgotten the most egregious scandal of Jeremy Corbyn in his entire political history, the Virgin Train Gate, where he sat on the floor. Yeah. And uh, he sat on the floor because he wanted to sit next to his wife. Ooh, he's making a political statement. Anyway, but more seriously, uh, I think uh, it's actually maybe a sign that Corbyn's doing very well, that nothing sticks and they're getting desperate for any smear they can because they're actually extremely worried and they're throwing all pretense to some sort of journalistic objectivity and running these giant smears week on, week out. But the the smears are getting more high level because like Corbyn's sitting on the floor and that whole train fiasco, if you don't know what this is about, it doesn't really matter. Um, (laughs) Now they're getting a bit high level. That's like Russian... Russia, Russian bots, Russian bots. I mean, it's it's the usual kind of Russophobia stuff, which we've discussed quite a bit on this podcast because it's unfortunately impossible to avoid. But this is like, you know, this is the Times, which is probably the paper which is closest to the intelligence establishment in the UK, trying everything they can. And it's like, it's it's, it's mad. You just think Corbyn's going to Corbyn's gonna win. I don't believe anybody buys this other than people who are already um, predisposed against Corbyn anyway. Yeah, I mean, there was a very good comment, I forget who it was from, on Angela Nagel's Facebook uh, war about, uh, in response to her posting this headline. And it said, essentially, the Sunday Times' media strategy, which is also driven by the Murdoch group's political priorities, is twofold. One is to uh, really go against their rivals, which is essentially new social media, new media, and really go after Facebook and Twitter and all the you know problems with uh, bots and fake news and all of this. Uh, in order to, as a sort of defensive mechanism of the Murdoch Empire. And the second thing is to, uh, you know, um, double down on the red pill, alt-right sort of uh, cultural reaction against, you know, the perceived forces of feminism and, uh, you know, racial openness that are invading society and threatening classical uh, freedoms. So they're really making a hard play, very obviously, to regain some of their market share. And uh, this fits somewhere in between. It's combining, you know, classic red scare tactics with uh an obsession with russian bots but like the british the british like establishment could look at stuff like in the u.s like fox news and kind of consider themselves far above it right we're more high-minded we're more serious we're the we're the times of london we're the paper of record and they've just become fox news now yeah, I mean, they're even more, I mean, it's as egregious, and it's also, like, more respectable figures doing it. It's not just Alex Jones, you know, wanking off with his chalkboard. And less entertaining than Alex Jones, so... Uh, it's you know. much less entertaining. The production value is really shoddy. But, I mean, the other thing we also had this week is some good news for once. We have a peace deal in Korea. Thanks to the Kim Jong-un and the progressive faction of the North Korean bureaucracy. Maybe he's a comrade after all. I like seeing political leaders holding hands. It's quite nice. A bit like when George W. Bush and the Saudi king held hands at, at, at Bush's ranch. Like, that was nice. And I like the two Koreans holding hands, too. It's nice or to see Trump it. and Macron. Or yeah. Trump and Macron. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Got a bit of dandruff there, Phil. I just want to brush that off. Yeah. I mean, um, oh. <laughs> I, mean I still got my hair. It was pretty really extraordinary <laughs> to see, like, uh, Macron give that speech to a rapturous applause in the American Congress. I really think he really thinks deep down with this sort of Jupiter complex that because of Trump's uh, incompetence and idiocy that if he can just influence him and take a greater center in world politics, he can truly position himself as the leader of the free world. I mean, yeah, what- I'm sure that must be right. Yeah. Moving from the absurd to hopefully something a little bit more serious. Uh, we've got this interview with uh, Katerina Principi, 
of the left bloc in Portugal talking about EU soft austerity um, and radical left strategy in the European periphery. Uh, this is next. This is me and Ben inter- interviewing Katarina. So, um, Katarina, just to start off, can you just sort of explain to us uh, who exactly is in power in Portugal and uh, how, how this government came into being? Uh, hi. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, yes. So in in um, in 2015, uh, we had general elections in in Portugal in October 2015, and um, after four years of very very harsh austerity, uh, led uh, nationally by the conservative right uh, in coalition, um, although they won again, uh, they they were the most voted parties. Um, uh, there was a new parliamentary composition, uh, meant meaning that uh, the Socialist Party. So, uh, okay, I always do this in international um, uh, conversations, uh, just to make it clear. Um, all the the parties in Portugal have pretty left wing names because most of them, or a lot of them, were formed during the Portuguese Revolution or in the outcome of the Portuguese Revolution. Sounds like a but lot of like Brazil. Be called yeah, so you, of course you couldn't be called like um, the conservative party uh, during uh, a socialist uh, revolution. Um, so, um, so our socialist party, which is basically the party of the of the socialist international, so the European Social Democracy, uh, had uh, uh, got second place in the elections, and then together with the left bloc, the party that I'm a member of, so the party of the right to left, um, broad left party, and the more old-fashioned communist party, uh, the three parties together uh, had actually majority on parliament. So for the first time in Portuguese history, um, there was a decision to form a government between the parties of the center and the center left, the the left and the center left. Um, This has meant uh, um, specifically that both the left bloc and the Communist Party decided not to join the government, but to give parliamentary support to the Socialist Party minority government. So this is actually what is happening. We have a government that is a government of the Socialist Party, but supported on parliament uh, um, by the left. Uh, And how this was done was to uh, discuss and agree on a common agreement uh, that basically says that, okay, on, on the most important measures, uh, meaning uh, the state budgets, the parties would vote in favor. Of course, every year for each state budget, um, measures are discussed and decided, but there is this agreement, this text, that is that gives basically the general overview of the red lines, of the, the things that should change, the things that can't be done, and so on. So this is what is happening. It's... Um, in the beginning, it was said to be possibly a very unstable solution because, you know, it's um, it could break very easily, but uh, we are already starting the discussions right now for the last state budget. So it's going to last the four years, the four normal uh, years. Um, just to give a little bit of background, um, how exactly was uh, Portugal affected by the global recession, uh, especially compared to its uh, fellow so-called pigs as the countries most affected by the sort of debt crisis in the Eurozone? I mean, if you, um, 
if you know or if you have a reference about what happened in Greece, uh, it was pretty similar what happened in Portugal. Of course, with some differences. Uh, first of all, um, Portugal was not set up to be the the laboratory of uh, uh, non-stop or endless austerity in Europe. Greece was it. Um, and therefore, although the measures were pretty much the same, uh, they um, it lasted uh, it didn't last as long, and uh, the measures weren't introduced as fast. So the level of impoverishment or the speed of impoverishment wasn't as fast as it was in Greece. Um, and we only had one memorandum, meaning one agreement between our government and the Troika. The Troika is the ECB, the European Central Bank, the European Commission, uh, uh, and uh, the IMF. Um, and so, therefore, if you can imagine Greece, you can imagine Portugal between 2011-2015, uh, as um, at that time in Greece, things were already uh, pretty worse, but Portugal was like Greece in the beginning. So, um, a lot of social cuts, um, massive unemployment, uh, precarity. It was the biggest migration wave of Portuguese history, even even bigger than during uh, uh, the dictatorship during the 60s. There was a big migration, um, but it was actually, uh, in two years, uh, around half a million or maybe even more people, especially younger in the beginning, but then also older people fled the country. Um, so you can, I mean, yeah, so um, the health system was crumbling down, uh, poverty levels were skyrocketing, um, so yeah, you, I think that's uh, sort of the, the, the big picture. So let me ask you, Katarina, about um, the position of the Troika with regard to Portugal, because um, as I'm sure our listeners will know, um, the kind of brutal austerity demanded by the Troika um, eventually uh, firstly implemented by the PASOK government and eventually uh, taken on really even by Syriza. Um, Greece was, as, as you made reference to, Greece was made a model of. Um, mm-hmm. was, why did this not happen with Portugal? Why, I mean, for all that um, an austerity was demanded by by, um, by the Eurozone of Portugal, it wasn't to the same degree as, um, as with Greece. Yes, um, so I think that... Um, one, it, so I don't think it is because Portugal is a stronger state. It's not. It's actually a weaker state in the dynamics of core periphery within the European Union. But um, I truly believe that the reason why was a political one. So um, Portugal was set not to be uh, the, was set to be a model or a role model or an example, but not of. Uh, the sort of harsh austerity as Greece was, but on the contrary, a model of success. So, if you look at the narrative uh, towards Portugal by the by the Merkel government in Germany uh, and and Schreiber, and even in the European Union, Portugal was always the good student. So, what does this mean? It meant that the, it was a government, and you know, it wasn't exactly like that. But okay, but uh, at a certain degree, a, a country that accepted austerity without uh, high levels of social social contestation. Mm. Um, and therefore, um, if you had 
a, an overwhelming example of how austerity was so destructive that, you know, if, if we look at the process of what happened in Greece, it sparked um, anti-austerity movements and solidarity movements around Europe. It sparked the possibility of uh, left-wing parties to um, grow and actually even win e elections. You can see, for example, after Syriza, or in the moment where Syriza was about to win elections the first time, if you look at the opinion polls in Spain, where there was going to be elections in one or one and a half years, Podemos was um, uh, taking the first, uh, the first or the second position, depending on the opinion polls. And so uh, there was the need, I think, by the European elite to set a, a different example, an example of a country that took the austerity measures, did not uh, explode in terms of social contestation, and uh, therefore there was the need to make it a successful example. So it wouldn't have worked if we would have had to ask for a second bailout, because then austerity would be so damaging uh, that probably social contestations would, would have risen, and eventually the possibility of new left-wing parties or, or uh, left-wing parties taking power, winning power, would be realistic. So, for example, if you look at the last year of the Portuguese right-wing government, also this might be also a question. Um, Sorry, this is a parenthesis, but in, in Greece, uh, PASOK was the first uh, was the first um, party to implement the memorandum, um, and that meant, of course, that PASOK right now is uh, gone. Right, it doesn't yeah. exist anymore. Um, in Portugal, the party that actually so all of the so the, the two right wing parties and the socialist party they signed the memorandum, but in the elections of two thousand eleven before it started to be applied, the right-wing won. So in Portugal, it was already directly the right-wing that was imposing um, uh, the memorandum with the Troika. And um, if you look at the last year of, of uh, Portugal's uh, um, four years of memorandum or of bailout, um, there were a, a lot of, um, 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 how do I say this, um, a lot of measures that were given to Portugal um, that were always said to be impossible to Greece. For example, one of them is called the a Public Sector Purchase Program that meant that the European Central Bank, that the, sorry, the Bank of Portugal could buy directly Portuguese uh, debt bonds, which was never because supposedly you, the European Central Bank and the uh, national banks cannot buy their own debt bonds directly. And when Greece wanted to do this, the European Union said immediately you can't. So there were a lot of measures that the European Union gave, or possibilities that the European Union gave to Portugal, uh, in order to actually meet, meet the expectations that they had for the last evaluation of the Troika, so that we wouldn't have to ask for a second bailout. So and I mean, in my so yeah, yeah, I mean, I just wanted, as an example. Yeah, so I mean, I guess the the case is that you know this is the the EU to a certain extent saying to Spain, saying to Italy. Um, you can either have the good austerity of Portugal or you can have the bad yep. austerity of Greece. So it's sort of the carrot and so the stick. If you allow, exactly. Sorry, what, what did you say? Sorry. Uh, I said it's the carrot and the stick. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's like if you allow uh, any sort of left-wing party that uh, makes or creates a space where people start to believe that austerity is actually not necessary, then we will smash you.
if you, you know, comply with our rules and accept it more or less and deal with them, you know, accept them and deal with them, uh, then we will, you know, make things easier for you. And I think that's why Portugal and, and, um, and so if Greece was the disciplinary example, Portugal was the successful example. And I think this is the two very, I mean, for me it's the big reason why uh, this developed so differently. So, I mean, with this with this case of Greece, I mean, is it, because eventually Greece caved in, I mean, the Syrian government caved in and implemented the austerity and implemented the memorandum, despite having uh, called the referendum uh, and ended up on the kind of wrong side of it eventually, yeah. Cyprus's uh, eventual treason there. Um, I mean, do you think that the Portuguese example uh, could have happened without Greece having happened before it? No. That's good. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. I agree. I mean, honestly, I don't think so. So, if if we if we would look back in time, and if Portugal would have if the, if Portugal would have had the need, and I say need in commas, to ask for a, buy, a bailout before Greece, then probably not. Um, it wouldn't have happened this way. So it seems that in the case of uh, Portugal. Um, even though it was sort of the model example of the good austerity, it somehow ended up happening with an anti-austerity government in power, even if the levels of social struggle were not nearly as compar- comparable to Greece. So what exactly happened here? How does Portugal become the one sort of social democratic uh, anti-austerity uh, regime in Europe? Okay, so first of all, I cannot say, and I don't think it's... Um, it is, it is fair or even correct to say that this is an anti-austerity government. Okay. I would describe it as a soft austerity government. Uh, and a government, and this is actually what is written in the text of the agreement between the Socialist Party and the left parties, uh, it's a government to stop the impoverishment process. So it's, it's not an anti-austerity uh, 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 government, you know, as we imagine anti-austerity governments and uh, uh, and actual social democratic policies to to be. Um, But I think it happened maybe because, you know, there was not the same type of social contestation that was in Greece that led a left-wing party to power. Um, But also, I think this has to do with the question of uh, the the revitalization of uh, social democracy in Europe. So if we look at what happened in PASOK, with PASOK in Greece, what is happening with the Socialist Party in France, even with the SPD in Germany, uh, you know, if we look at Italy as well, um, there is, uh, or if we look at the the Socialist Party in in, in Spain, um, Portugal was following the same trend. Uh, The Socialist Party, uh, even after as I said, the four years of the harshest austerity and impoverishment and so on, they were not capable of winning the elections. They, they got second place. So I think that, and, and because there was this new parliamentary composition, they had two choices. They would either become a junior partner uh, in a coalition government with a right wing and, and build a center, a center government, like the SPD has done, like PASOK did, and so on. And I think they all at the moment understood that 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 path did not lead to success. Or they could do something um, 
that I that was uh, sort of an experiment, which well, was okay. We are going. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, we're going to negotiate. Sorry, go, go ahead, because yeah. I think you might be preempting my, yeah. my questions. You, you go are. ahead. You're preempting a lot of our questions. <laughs> I am answering. I am answering. So they could either do this or they could negotiate with the left. And of course, to negotiate with the left, they would need to take over some of the demands of the left wing parties. And so actually, you know, stop the massive impoverishment process and regain some uh, economic dynamic and recovery. Um, without compromising too much, but still um, giving a new feeling and a new experience of, okay, we had this 12 years and now we have a recovery and a moment of growth. Um, that is possible because the Socialist Party negotiated with the left and took another path that no other socialist party of the of the, of the uh, social democratic you know, parties of the of the second international the socialist international took before and i think that that's the reason why we have this situation it, it it is it has clearly to do with the survival of social democracy if they would have become a junior partner in a collision with right wing they would have uh, vanished as all of their counterparts in europe yeah. They didn't. So yeah, now absolutely. Polling, almost absolute majority. So you described the process by which the Socialist Party managed to avoid bearing the, all the blame for austerity. Um, but yeah. then it came. To, but then the elections were held in 2015, and it managed to um, come into power at a point in which certain economic indicators started trending upwards. So, to what extent was the Socialist Party lucky, or and to what extent was it due to strategy? So, well, yeah, so my point is, I think they were both lucky and smart. On the one hand, they were lucky because they, although they signed the memorandum in 2011, they did not come to power at that moment. So they weren't actually the ones who had to implement and manage austerity under the dictates of the Troika. And on the other hand, uh, it was up to their strategy that they were smart. So, um if they would have, I mean, to create the, the situation that, they, that, that we have today, I mean, they were, they took second place in the elections in 2015. Um, they, uh, even after the craziest uh, austerity years, and um, so they didn't manage to win. And they had, so no party had absolute majority, so uh, they had two choices when, they, when it came their time to negotiate, try to negotiate a government. Either they would enter a government with a right wing as a junior partner, which actually never happened in Portuguese history. Um, so the history of grand coalitions, we don't have it. Uh, but then their, I mean, their faith or the path that their counterparts in Europe uh, have taken, I mean, it has shown that it didn't work very well for their <laughs> uh, successes. I mean, look at Germany, for example, in the SPD or at, with, at PASOK. So to avoid that process, I think they were smart enough to say, no, we want to try to negotiate to the left. Um, and, of course, to negotiate to the left, they would have to give up a little bit on their own program. They would have to turn it a little bit more social and left-wing, because if not, the left would not have negotiated with them. Um, but I think that's what creates the situation that we have now. It was uh, a socialist party that was very smart, on deciding to try to negotiate to the left instead of to the center right um, in order to 
regain some of their political space that has been disappearing over the last 30 years as all the parties of of the of the um, of the socialist international of the of the the international the the, the so european social democracies so um so as i said i think they were both lucky and uh, strategically smart um i'm going to next i'm going to take it a little bit uh of a different angle on things um, can you sort of explain to us in a, as briefly as you can? Uh, we don't want obviously these are very big questions and could take us quite a while to get through the whole history pro- properly. But uh, exactly uh, what tendencies the um, Socialist Party represents? What exactly its social base and its sort of political history following the Carnation Revolution? And then also, what is the local the scare the uh, what is the party's history brief, brief, uh, briefly, and what is its social base? Okay, so the 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 socialist party in Portugal is a part of the of the Socialist International. Um, it was formed uh, during the revolutionary process with the support of so seventy four seventy five with a very clear support of of the SPD, actually with money uh, coming from the SPD from Germany. The idea of creating um, a social democratic party in Portugal at the time was to um, um, a reformist social democratic party in a moment of revolution was, of course, to win uh, the, um, the majority of working people in the country towards a path of left wing reforms and stop the revolutionary process. Um, on the contrary, it's so it's it's not a same the same type of party as the SPD is due to its history. So it's not a party that or labor. It's not a party that comes from uh, the organization of the working class uh, through labor struggles that uh, reflects into the necessity of a political in- instrument. It is actually a constructed party that. W- did not come exactly from, did not come at all, in, in, in fact, from the organization of the workers' movement. Um, so, nonetheless, um, the, the, the social basis of support of the Socialist Party is, is, is working class. It's so, you know, as for all European Social Democratic Parties, we say normally that their leadership is much more to the right than their social basis of support. And um, uh, and that's actually um, this uh, reading or this analysis is what allows uh, for the formation of this what we call or what we can call parties of a new type. So broad left parties, uh, as Bloco being an example, Die Linke in Germany, Podemos in Spain, although a little bit different, Syriza uh, in Greece. Um, not exactly the same, but in a way, for not in Italy and so on. It's this idea that um, social democratic parties have been turning to the right for the last 30 years. Uh, have have they have been having a process of neoliberalization, um, and that left uh, left wing actual social democratic policies, left social democratic policies, um, orphan without any political instrument. And therefore, um, there was the idea of these parties is to, or was at least, to um, 
built on both trying to win over the the unhappy disinfection basis, basis of support of the former social democratic parties because they were not social democratic parties anymore they weren't their neoliberal parties and at the same time joining um uh, with uh, joining this basis the, the the social basis of support of these parties with the new f- types of anti-capitalist, ultra-globalization, feminist, ecologist, um, queer, LGBT Mm -hmm. movements. So I I normally say it's to try to join the social base of support of the SPs, of of, of the the SDs, plus uh, the more anti-capitalist milieu. And so this is the strategy for the formation of parties like Bloco. And you asked me for the composition of Bloco. So Bloco was formed in 99 with... um, the coming together of three smaller, much smaller parties, um, a Trotskyist party uh, of the Fourth International, um, a former Maoist party, so Marxist-Leninist party, and um, a more Euro-communist-oriented party that was actually a breakup with the with the Portuguese uh, CP. Um, and it, it was these three parties that merged and and disappeared into this bigger party. With I mean. We, lots of people that were not organized uh, activists, people that had older people or that had been active during the revolutionary process but didn't have any political organization anymore. So that was the reorganization of the radical left in Portugal with the, the strategy, as I said, of winning over the basis of support of the SPs that have become new liberal parties, plus joining with uh, all these new movements and moments. Um, together in one organization. So with that in mind... Was that um, clear? Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's great. great. Um, <laughs> so with that in mind, um, do you, what is the logic, um, according to you, of the Bloco da Esquerda's support for the Socialist Party in government and for this sort of, um, you know, for supporting a, a party implementing a you know soft austerity which uh, protects certain rights and welfare and benefits and so on? What's the logic there? And what is the kind of the radical left argument for supporting such a government? I mean, do you think it it, it provides a better basis for future struggle? So um, it, this is my, I mean, it's my opinion. <laughs> no, I, I don't think it does. And um, and I don't think, uh, to be very honest, that uh, we dealt, we blocked, we dealt very well with this situation. So... Um, the process of the agreement actually started during uh, during the electoral campaign of 2015, um, when actually our spokesperson uh, proposed on a TV debate to the leader of the Socialist Party uh, three points upon which, uh, if you know, if the elections uh, outcome would be favorable, etc., etc., et um, upon which we would be willing to negotiate with the SP. So after you have after you made this move, you can't. When the socialist party says, "Okay, we want to negotiate with you," we can say, "No, we were just joking. This mm-hmm. was just electoral tactic." So you actually have to negotiate. At the same time, and this is not a small detail, um, we had a very impoverished, very tired, very. Um, um, unhopeful population because of the four years of austerity. And so there was this 
generalized feeling of hope. Okay, let's take this bastard away from power, you know? Because if if the, the left does not negotiate with the Socialist Party, then the right wing will, will, will take power somehow. Yeah. So because there was this very overwhelming feeling about it, or a big feeling in the population about it, um, it was hard for the left, and I mean, it, it is so true that so true that even the Communist Party decided to negotiate with the Socialist Party, which is also unheard of at the national level in Portuguese history. That it's um, it was um, almost a necessity, but then that's where the problem starts, because in my view and in my reading, um, uh, the Socialist Party was so eager to negotiate to the left because of what I explained before, the necessity of survival. Um, because if not, they would disappear if they would become a junior partner, etc., mm-hmm. on the right-wing government. Um, that I think, I believe, that the left could have negotiated this agreement much further than it actually did. Right. This is the first thing. The second thing is when you're talking about strategy or what we can, um, if this is a sort of any a form of uh, building power, support, and so on. I mean, facing the, the, the very clear conditions that we're in, and this government, and this support of this government in particular, then I think that um, it would have been possible, and we didn't do it. Um, very honestly, we didn't do it, but the contrary of that, in my opinion. Uh, it would have been possible to uh, use this um, platform of like, okay, now we have this responsibility for ruling the country, but in a very, I mean, the the margins, I mean, we, we don't have the power, a lot of power, because we are a small party in a, in a sort of a coalition. But so to use this as a platform and to actually explore the contradictions of this situation, through, of course, outside um, forms of organization. So in my opinion, the only uh, possible positive outcome that something like this could have been was to expose the the contradictions of the Socialist Party and to expose them by building um, movements on the ground, by, by trying to work on the questions of labor that, you know, parentheses, by the way, are basically left untouched, which is uh, a very problematic thing because, of course, austerity targets uh, labor as the first uh, target, sorry. <laughs> um, and, and so we are still, we have still the same labor laws um, uh, that we had during the Troika. Things didn't change. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there were a lot of opportunities where we could have explored the contradictions of the Socialist Party, but of our position also, you know, how can we have actually one step in and one step out? And, this, and only if we actually build the one step out or the one foot outside, it would be possible to have, to have made this experience into a moment of growth for the radical left. I think we lost that moment. Mm. Well, I guess it's telling that that uh, pieces in, for example, The Economist and the FT have talked in very positive terms about Portugal's experience as a sort of good austerity. It's like, well, it's not been as brutal, um, but they've still managed to uh, reduce the deficit to 2%. And so, you know, that 
that's quite. I think that, I guess that's quite yeah, telling but, that that maybe the radical left didn't push the social democratic force uh, far enough to the left. On the other hand, I so, guess to, to make, if okay, I could just sorry, restate sorry. a question, I just want yeah, your opinion yeah, yeah, on sorry, this. Sorry. Yeah, no, I just want your opinion on this briefly. I mean, do you think it's a more um, propitious moment for the radical left? when the former Social Democratic Party gets destroyed? I mean, basically, is pacification a good thing for the radical left or not? I mean, because well, we I guess that depends on... Yeah. I, I will answer to that. That depends on how you deal with that. Because, you know, it, it is very clear that uh, the reason... From, I think it's very clear that the reason why Syriza grew was, uh, of course, by all the social mobilizations and popular mobilizations happening in Greece, but also because uh, Pazok disappeared. So um, the problem is then you have to make a choice. And the choice is do you want to take over their place and become a new mm -hmm. Pazok? Or do you want to take that massive basis of support and try to steer it left? So I think that that answers that 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 question. The answer to that question is it depends. I mean, it yeah. can be a situation where the left can profit from it, or it can be a situation where the left can get erased because it just substitutes uh, the, the 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 political place of the former social democracy. And I mean, what we what Greece shows is that there was a first moment where it seemed that. The, the the erosion of Pazok was a good thing for the radical left, and a second moment where, when the radical left start stops being the radical left, then it just takes over its place. Yeah. yeah. So I mean that depends on on strategy and on perspectives, and so uh, therefore this is also a little bit of our question. I mean all this new left parties uh, that were formed around Europe from the 90s on. Um, I mean. There, the 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 analysis is that it would be very hard to build a a, a mass left wing party without eroding the social support of the formal uh, uh, social democratic parties. So therefore, in theory, it should be good that uh, <laughs> that the, the 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 social democratic parties self inflicted their own destruction for the Red Collect, but in practice, it depends on what you do with that. Um, just to uh, sort of bring this out into... Can, I, can I just make a parenthesis about sure. the deficit? For sure. So th this is, um, I think that's, that's also missing, and a little bit my fault as well, but um, there's a lot of myths about <laughs> that are going around about what is happening in Portugal. And, and I mean, it is true that the deficit, deficit is lower, but for example, just last month, uh, so the deficit for Portugal right now, the government is expecting the deficit this year to be 0 0.9, which is the lowest deficit ever. But uh, the Eurostat, the statistic uh, body of the European Union, published um, um, uh, the, the, their statistics for the deficit uh, of Portugal last month. And actually, Portugal is, um, is um, around three, deficit is around more than around 3 percent which is the the budgetary treaty uh, limit and this is why this is this is a very interesting thing it's because the recapitalization of the public bank was not so the portuguese government and this is where i say that we are this uh, sort of example um, in many different ways um, the portuguese government managed to um, 
to um, to negotiate with the European Commission so that in the in the uh, counting of our deficit the all the money that the Portuguese government put into the recapitalization of the big public bank would not be counted would not be taken in consideration and the Eurostat said, no, this doesn't make any sense. This was public expenditure, so we have to account for it. So there's, a, so this is where you can see um, where the the importance still of uh, the European level and the European institutions. So they can, you know, play with the figures as much as they want. So when, if they wanted to sanction Portugal, if the the political situation would not be in their favor or uh, if they would not agree with the political situation, they could say Portugal has a deficit, this deficit, which is true, actually, a deficit of 3%, and therefore we can impose sanctions. Um, and the Portuguese debt is growing, not in comparison to the GDP, because the GDP grows a little bit, but it's growing in, in raw numbers. So the, 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 the deficit is over the limit, the debt, the, the Portuguese debt is growing. Therefore, mm-hmm. we can even ask for a second bailout or a, 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 force you to get a second bailout. But they, when the political uh, uh, panorama is in their favor, they can play with the figures. Um, this brings us to, uh, we have one final question for you. Um, and this is, of course, is a very big question. <laughs> so, But I think you have taken a very specific stance on this, both in your writing for Jacobin and in the book, uh, you co-edited with Basker. Um, what is essentially your analysis of the European left and how it should relate to the European Union going forward? <laughs> That's the one million dollar question. You know, <laughs> I think it's more than a million now. It's like the billion yeah, dollar question. Yeah, no, maybe, yeah. Billion euro question. I mean, I, you know, for us, I think... Um, the question of the European crisis and the European Union is the question of our generation in many ways. Um, and it's a question that we've, if we don't get it right, you know, we would probably be missing a point. And I don't say with this that I know exactly how to get it right, but at least I, I think there's some, um, some things that we can point, some uh, directions we can point. I um, view the European Union still very much as both a transnational and a national um, structure. So it's a transnational um, a transnational financial economic bloc that is composed by competing nation states. Um, and you can see that when we talk about core periphery in the EU and the role that Germany, especially Germany, Germany and France, now more Germany than Germany and France, play in the in the in the rules and uh, you know like all the process of the 40 years of european of eu membership for portugal has meant um the the destruction of our productive sector substituting it substituting our economy by an economy based on non-tradable goods and services to import products um produced at the center um so that um germany would have an, an export market we would be the import market uh, devaluing the value of labor and substituting it by easy credit and so on and so forth so it's clearly a, an integrated um phenomena but is a, where the countries although all the bourgeoisies profit from it they don't profit at the same time and at the same level um and so therefore i think we need to go back to the essential questions that uh, target not only 
the rules that uh, do not allow us to actually overcome austerity in the long run. So what do we need to overcome austerity in the long run? Right now and in the long run, we need the capacity of deciding. We still don't have the capacity of deciding. We cannot, uh, we have rules on what we can privatize or, or what we can nationalize and what we have to privatize. We have rules on our imports. We have rules on our exports. We have rules on, uh, we, we, can't, we, do, we do not decide about our own currency. We have no way of using our cur- currency in our own benefit. We have a huge debt, um, and actually we are ruled by financial uh, treaties that are not decided by our government. And insofar as democracy is not only an empty jargon, but something that you know that is an everyday practice, and that is about this essential thing that we can decide upon, I think that we need to um, build um, movements parties, movements, agendas, programs that are not only national but international that focus on some questions. First, on um, sovereignty, not in a nationalistic sense or patriotic sense, but on this idea that we need to regain control in order to be able to decide. And therefore, we need this idea of sovereignty as economic and political sovereignty means we need probably to get a problem, for sure, to exit the euro, the eurozone. We need to um, cut most of our income as public debt. We need to nationalize um, the, the strategic sectors of the economy and banking system, or at least a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, in Portugal, the banking system is 80% or around that is already nationalized. But, uh, I mean, it has money. It was bailed out, but then it's not under national control. So actually, it's paid by public money, but it's not under public control. So we need to have public control of the banking system. uh, And we need a strategy of public investment to um, (laughs) reboost work and and labor and to understand what can be the role of a small economy, a very small, I used to say that Portugal is the periphery of the periphery of Europe, of a very small economy uh, in the world capitalist system. And for that, we need these tools. We need uh, tools of sovereignty and uh, and democracy that we do not have uh, in the in belonging to the EU that are actually taken away from us. Uh, and uh, so, I, and, and I don't think uh, we can do that by ourselves. I need. I think we need movements, left-wing movements that center on these questions around the EU. Um, I think it is possible to have some sort of coordinated, because, you know, when we talk about leaving the EU or talking about leaving the euro, there are many ways. I mean, there's a way of leaving the EU or the euro that is right-wing and nationalist. There's a way that is imposed by capital. But there's also a way to do this that can be coordinated and for the benefit of the majority of the working people. And so this is what I think needs to be more than navigating the small margins of very small power and um, compromises with uh, social liberal governments. What we need is actually um, strategy and movements and uh, reorganization of labor that allows us to build and to make 
this uh, to take to turn these demands into uh, what drives us and to make them the demands of the majority. I think that was a very eloquent and succinctly put uh, <laughs> statement on the question. I mean, I certainly agreed with everything you said, and I think it's also a good place to uh, end the interview. All right, that was Katarina Principi. Uh, now we're going to have a discussion, the four of us, Ben, George, Phil, and myself, about what we've learned. Um, so, I mean, just to briefly summarize, you've got kind of two narratives about the left bloc in Portugal, about the center-left government, and that you've got the left in power and there's resistance to austerity. But then you've also got, as we mentioned during the interview, this Economist cover, looking at it as the center-left behaving responsibly, implementing soft austerity and returning to growth. And I think what we've learned from Katarina is that it's the truth is somewhere in between. Um, so let's discuss two different points. Firstly, let's discuss left strategy, and then we'll move on to discussing the logic of European austerity. So firstly, a question to, to all of us here. Do we agree that this, uh, that the left bloc and, uh, and the communist party's uh, agreement of toleration with the Portuguese center left, the socialist party, is a workable electoral model in parliamentary democracies? We learned that it was a bit of an accident that it came about, that in some ways their bluff was called and they had to go along with it. Do you think it's a good thing that they were able to moderate the center-left's uh, more neoliberal tendencies? Well, I think this goes no. to... I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'll pose it as this. In, uh, there's, in It's essentially about uh, what you think is the limits of the possible in the time. If you're in a relatively peripheral country like uh, Portugal... And uh, there isn't exactly a, a chance of the radical left really imposing its hegemony uh, in the immediate future. It's really a choice between like slow, steady decline that you can somewhat use the effects of as opposed to, uh, you know, more Greek style harsh reforms. And I think there is a uh, there is an argument, even if I wouldn't necessarily make make it. Uh, in this case, I haven't really made up my mind yet, if that a uh, sort of defensive maneuver in this case uh, keeps the space open for political possibilities in the future. Uh, but I think, as uh, Katarina pointed out, the ability of the left bloc to deepen its social base in the working class and the social movements, as well as the traditional base of the Socialist Party, has been quite limited. I think they've abandoned, I mean, but this is the sense that I got from Katerina. I mean, she was speaking in a personal capacity, but from what she said, it seems to me, and extrapolating also from what she said, it seems to me they've clearly abandoned any possibility for standing independently for the interests of Portuguese democracy and Portuguese workers. And the question, and this came, so, I mean, unfortunately, I don't think it's so easy to separate the two issues, Alex. But the central question of Portuguese politics, and this came across very clearly from the interview, is the European Union and continued membership of the European Union. Anything that allows them to play into a model, a model for successful austerity in the European Union in contrast to Greece being punished um, is deeply damaging to democracy and to the left across Europe as a whole. And so being complicit within that is deeply damaging in the long term. And bearing in mind, we're not talking about some very abstract, you know, kind of long term calculus, very immediate, direct questions uh, about the status of de of weaker countries under crushing terms of austerity in the eurozone and enormously politically restricted by the rules and regulations that are imposed by the European Union. 
Yeah, absolutely. But I think at the same time, you know, this is the, I guess this would be the appeal. This would be the selling point of this agreement of toleration that the radical left does not get blamed for its complicity with that, that it exacts certain concessions. And Katerina was very clear on the fact that she feels they did not exact enough concessions from the center left. But nevertheless, they are not in government. You know, they're they're supporting a, a, a party in government. But they're not in government um, and therefore they won't get the blame for it. So it won't destroy them. Even the worse. But then they have no political responsibility. So it's the worst in some ways. I think it could end up being the worst of both possible worlds because they don't even have to take political responsibility while they can particularly, you know, p- claim to take a benefit for anything positive, distance themselves from anything negative. And I think voters would be able to see through such um, cynical um, and deluded maneuvering. Well, I'm not sure if it's so cynical. I do think there's a real case in, particularly because the forces calling for a European exit right now in other states are relatively weak, um, that uh, it's a holding guard action. I mean, the more, for me, the more uh, radical scenario would be uh, coordinated uh, breaks with the EU in several of these states. But unfortunately, Italy, uh, as we learned from our episode, all the parties regarding how anti-establishment they claim to be are completely fine with staying in the EU. And I don't think the question is raised in uh, the same strong way in Spanish politics right now. And after Syriza, uh, I think a lot of other, I think the forces calling for the sort of coordinated exit are relatively weakened uh, than they were a few years ago. Well, and you're beholden to the electoral calendar, even if there were forces in each country you can't, pushing for Brexit. Yeah, I mean, this is just... A, it's the to, fantasy to it... of coordination is the problem, right? The fantasy of coordination yeah. is the problem. While everyone is waiting for somebody else to make the first move, nobody makes the first move. And then there was the first move. Series had tried to do this, right? Part of Series' strategy was to kind of hold on uh, in government until Spain came online, right? I mean, yeah. that was the and whole that Podemos, did, and right? it never did. And then, and then there was the treason of Cyprus, and we know the rest of the yeah. story. Yeah, Absolutely. that's 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 true. But I I still think that there's an argument to be made, and we can't just discount it. That in would you already have a party with ten percent? You have a party with ten percent of the vote, twelve percent. I don't have the exact figure, but somewhere around that, which is a relatively small party, uh, it doesn't have the capacity to govern yet that uh, there is some case, even if, as Katerina pointed out, there has been mistakes made in terms of building a base, that this is a defensive measure that could be used to broaden the base or the popularity of a project going forward. But I think the mistake has been, as Katerina pointed out, uh, that the mainstream respectability granted to the party on behalf, as part of this deal, as being part of the... as being. Uh, a decisive force in Portuguese politics has dictated the logic and strategy of the party going forward, where it sought to uh, occupy the sort of mainstream presence instead of really building its mobilization and political uh, capital as well as its social base. I think that I think if it went the other way and it was able to build a social base while pushing for, say, a Portuguese exit, it would be a more defensible uh, uh, model going forward. I think often this this idea of kind of mainstream respectability for like further left parties is a is a bit of a poison chalice because it does often require a lot of these sort of compromises or these it sort of leads you away from what should be or would be the central plank of your policy towards saying well actually okay we need to we need to be become appealing to voters and we need to basically follow whatever is the the consensus to a certain extent rather than thinking okay how can we actually lead people um and i think that's sort of in the pre-corbyn Labour Party, that was quite clear. 
Um, and I'm not saying Corbyn's radically departed from that, but it's a bit. It's still there in the current Labour Party as well, even under Corbyn. Yeah, but it's not. I mean, I think it's the weakness of the left for such a long time is now is is just. I mean, it's understandable that it's a defensive strategy that you first seek to become more respectable, and then you can sort of start so, to build your base a little bit and start to change things a little bit. But so, so to, I mean, to to focus this a little bit back on Portugal before we move on to the EU question, I know they're not. It's sort of an artificial separation, but just for the sake of, of this discussion, one thing we should discuss is the fact that this has allowed this this sort of um, this agreement between the radical left and the centre left has allowed the centre left to avoid pasalkification. Uh, is that good for the radical left? Um, Katrina thought not, and I, I'm I'm, tent- I'm tempted to agree because. Well, it, it doesn't create the space for the radical left. On the other hand, if you look at it across Europe where pasalkification has happened, whether it's in France, whether it's in the Netherlands, um, in Greece as well, it hasn't necessarily opened up space for the radical left. And in fact, it's opened up space on the radical right, which has channeled a lot of working class voters, ex-socialist uh, voters uh, to the far right. So, uh, But that's internal. Those, these are problems that are internal to the left. They're not... It's not as if you can uh, separate out these external factors from issues that are also internal to the left. The left has failed to take advantage because of its own internal problems of the space opened up by the decline of social democracy. So the fact that the radical left in Portugal has extended a lifeline to social democracy is not going to bode well. It's popular frontism 2.0, you know, tragedy and farce is very much, I mean, it's on a much smaller scale, obviously, and I don't want to overstate its historic um, place, but there is an element to which they will, I'm sure they will regret to the fact in which they helped social democracy survive in Portugal. Um, I mean, just going to chime in here on uh, maybe one last point before we move, change it. But I think the thing with social democracy and what we're seeing right now, I think the Corbyn scenario is, as I mentioned in a previous episode, is a case where we have seen a social democratic or uh, left revival in a social democratic party, a renewal, but without a renewal of uh, working class militancy or a upsurge in the union movement. And I think that's part of the problem, why it's so difficult for uh, the decline of the social democracy to necessarily be considered as a uh, radical opportunity is because, with some exceptions, and uh, the, there isn't a revival in terms of the strengths of the working class, the traditional basis of the left. It's called into question new organizational strategies, particularly in the union movement, which poses a uh, difficult political question in some respects. So it's not necessarily a position of absolute strength in that, even though the Social Democratic Party has been completely complicit and in many cases responsible for the long-term degeneration in terms of uh, organizing the working class. I would also add, one of the maybe the interesting things about the Corbyn model is momentum, where you have a party essentially having a social movement created separate of the par- from the party in order to radicalize it. But momentum is not necessarily just like a social movement. Oh, it's nice people taking the streets. It's a very specific project, which is to build cater for a left-wing project. It's to build cater. To have a project outside of the party to build cater, I think is quite an interesting model and something think, useful learning from that model and perhaps that's not being repeated in other cases particularly in portugal where you haven't seen a massive you know protest surge as you saw in greece or in spain which produced a new layer of cater that could go up to and occupy positions in the left party no i disagree i think it's the um the weak it wasn't the weakness of the working class the working class delivered in terms of the brexit vote it was the weakness of labor in being unable to seize the democratic mandate that was offered to them through the leave vote 
and their failure to seize that mandate and to wield it effectively is the thing that's going to cost them. Um, and momentum is momentum is a social movement for Remain. It's a social movement for a banker's Brexit, which is to say a soft Brexit. It's mi- overwhelmingly studenty and middle class. And that is going no way, no way to reviving long term politics in the context of British, the British political system in the long term. There's a more isn't there a more general context as well here that the social democratic parties, which we're seeing die, um, which I think is a good a good thing or change change form. It just reminds me of Peter Mayer's analysis of all of these things which previously gave these these parties a sort of institutional reach beyond just the the geographical and I guess also sociological um, narrow corridors of power. They don't exist anymore. So there has to be some sort of institutional um, rebirth. I think I'm not sure I entirely agree with your characterization of momentum, Phil, but I think there are, you know, there are a couple of things that you put your finger on in terms of its limitations currently in terms of the political in terms of the policies but i think it's um i mean that's got to be part of a, a left-wing renewal of some sort having a social base having a social movement that allows a party to extend beyond just westminster or wherever the wherever the political center of a country is i mean i think my point with the working class is not necessarily like they had wrong views it's the more about the levels in the trade union movement it's about organizing organization and uh, sort of strike militancy which is unfortunately not happening but i do think there's something ready to be said about a movement created outside a social democratic party specifically to build cater which i maintain is a quite an interesting phenomenon all right we're gonna have to park that little bit right there because uh, we're gonna come back to brexit and momentum and corbynism in a big way in episodes to come um but just maybe to close this off i thought one of the most interesting aspects of um, the interview with Katarina and the reason we decided to do an episode on Portugal uh, beyond just the interest of in, in Portugal as a country in itself, but because it presents specifically this model of Portugal as the carrot, uh, Portugal as the EU's carrot and Greece as the stick. So Portugal is good austerity, Greece is bad austerity. And as it was very explicit, I think, in the interview, the Portuguese case would not have happened in the way that it is happening if it hadn't been for Greece first, right? So if you didn't have the punishment, the destruction of Greece first to show you this is what happens as a way of disciplining other southern democracies, uh, you know, you wouldn't have this Portuguese case where you have a little bit more soft uh, kind of kid gloves approach to implementing austerity. Yeah, I thought that was, that was, Katerina made that point really, really well. Um, but it was, you know, really interesting that her, her idea that, that's you know you can't be fully anti-austerity or the or the eu will really punish you so you, i think she described it as as a good good austerity rather than an anti-austerity no position. that was really that was really i thought that was really insightful and important and particularly the different perspective it gave on the coverage in the kind of the international the liberal mm. press that is um, kind of mm. lavishing praise on portugal for uh, rescuing social democracy effectively, by which they mean, you know, social democracy serving in their interests. Mm. And it was it was interesting to hear from her perspective how that looks different from, from that position. Yeah, I also think uh, one of the things that came out in the interview quite strongly is that uh, the Portuguese and Greece cases were really eyeing towards Italy, which, of course, we've covered as the other major problem in child 
of uh, the EU and the one which probably they saw as the most likely. I mean, France and Spain to, a le- to also an extent uh, as being the ones that might step out of line. And it's amazing the sort of cynicism of this project, which is still held by some as a left as some sort of democratic safeguard in that they're willing to purposely impoverish one country and really destroy its uh, social ties and uh, keep one country together purely to serve a cynical political interest to show other countries uh, about how to keep uh, within the rules or you'll face consequences. This this sort of project, I mean, this sort of carrot and stick is completely against any sort of spirit of pan-European cooperation or democracy. That's the European Union. Exactly. All right, and we'll have to leave it there for this week. Uh, that's been our discussion on Portugal. Uh, we had an interview with Catarina Principi of the Left Bloc. We are back next time with a discussion on the legacies, the social and cultural legacies of May 68, discussing ideas such as post-materialism, horizontalism, and self-expression. So be sure to tune in for that. And for now, that's it from us. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> you insist. You insist. <laughs> I'm always going to say bye. We should keep. We should keep that in. That, that sounds good.